Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do take it and turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 this morning. Um, for the benefit of those of you who missed the announcement time this morning, um, in the words of one of my favorite songs, I weren't supposed to be here. Um, Pastor Joe was due to preach for us this morning, and he's not feeling well, as I mentioned uh, in the announcement time, and as Brian mentioned during the prayer time, let's continue to keep him in prayer. Um, but he not being able to be here meant I had to step up very last minute. And so as I kind of took a moment, prayed, and asked for God's help as to where to go in God's word, my thoughts came back to this verse, which is a familiar verse for me, is one I meditate on often. And so thought I would bring a message from this passage. Ezra chapter 7, um, there in the historical section of your Old Testament, Ezra the seventh chapter. The verse I'm going to consider this morning is verse 10, but to give us some context, um, I'd invite you to read with me from verses 1 through to verse 10. So Ezra chapter 7, focus being verse 10 this morning, but for context we'll read verses 1 through 10. Ezra chapter 7 verses 1 through 10, and if you're able to do so, would you stand with me as we read this portion of God's word? We like to stand as we read the scriptures out of reverence for God's word. Ezra chapter 7, reading from verse 1 through to verse 10. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of God. After these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, Sariah's son, Azariah's son, Hilkiah's son, Shalom's son, Zadok's son, Ahitab's son, Amariah's son, Azariah's son, Mariah's son, Zariah's son, Uzi's son, Buki's son, Abishua's son, Phineas's son, Eliezer's son, the chief priest Aaron's son. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which Yahweh the God of Israel had given. The king had, request, had granted him everything he requested because the hand of Yahweh his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, during the seventh year of the king. He began, on, he began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, since the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of Yahweh, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. The grass withers, grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it will abide forever. Will you be seated and join with me as I breathe the word of prayer and I ask for the Spirit's help as we look at this portion of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our eternal God, we thank you for every privilege you give us to hear your word, planned or unplanned, prepared or relatively unprepared. 
We thank you that the power doesn't reside in the one who preaches, but the power resides in your word. We thank you that your word does never return void, but it accomplishes all that you send it to do. And so, Father, I ask that as you in your providence have appointed that this be the word for today, for your people, I pray that you would help me just to get out of the way and allow your spirit to speak to your people. May we hear a better word than that which is preached because of the teaching ministry of your spirit who guides us into all the truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. As I said, my text this morning is going to be just a single verse, verse 10. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of Yahweh, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. As you can see on the screen, I've tagged our text this morning, becoming a scripture-saturated soul. Becoming a scripture-saturated soul. As I get started this morning, can I ask a question as we begin? Do you love your Bible? Now, before you answer that question, think about what that means. Let me put it another way. Do you long for the word of God? Maybe that's a better way to phrase that question than do you love your Bible. Do you long for the word of God? Again, but before you give the appropriate or, dare I say, typically churchy answer, again, think about that with me. I think it's possible to experience what I have called Bible fatigue in our Christian lives. I think it's possible to experience that in our church life as a local body. I think it's possible for the church as a whole at times to experience that. Bible fatigue, Bible fatigue. Kofi, what do you mean by that? What's this idea of Bible fatigue? Well, few of us, and I say us intentionally because I'm not going to say that I've never been in this, but I have. Few of us would ever admit to it, but it's very possible to get tired of the Word of God. Uh, have, you, have you ever been around somebody who that's the case? Uh, if I can get personal, I went through a season of several months a few years back where I went through, that's why I came up with this phrase, Bible fatigue. I had literally Bibles lining a shelf in my room at the time, but couldn't bring myself to read any of them. Couldn't listen to preaching. Couldn't read any Christian books. I, for all intents and purposes, I was literally dragging myself to church for about three, four months. I, I still went. Didn't, I wasn't going to sit at home on a Sunday or Wednesday night after work. I still went, but it wasn't, there was no hunger for it. It's not that the word wasn't doing anything. It's, I just was disinterested and I, I couldn't, to this day, I still can't put my finger on what was happening. I mean, granted, there was a lot happening in my life at that time. And perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, I could have seen that season coming. 
But I, I raise that rather personal story because I think it's all too possible that even in a body like ours, and praise God, our church is young, and I'll be honest, I don't see signs of a bad case of, if you want to call it this, institutional Bible fatigue. I, I don't see that in our body. Praise the Lord. But if I've learned anything from my own experience, it's that the fact that we don't have a problem now doesn't mean we can't do with some exhortation, either in preparation for seasons that come like that, or even if we're having a great time right now, we can't. doesn't mean we can't do with some exhortation to, as it were, keep on keeping on. As I said last night, about 6 o'clock, I got a text message saying I was going to be preaching. Um, for most preachers, that is a, that is actually a nightmare. Um, I was actually on a phone call with somebody else, and I had to cut the phone call short. I was like, yeah, i got to go. Um, i got a sermon to go, right, <laughs> which I hadn't planned on. And as I sat in the chair in the little makeshift office in the house that we're staying in, uh, I, I took a moment, well, more than a few moments, prayed, and said, Lord, you got to help me. I, I wasn't prepared for this. And so as I prayed and spent some time just thinking, I went to two texts in my mind. I won't tell you what the other one was because I'm, I'm going to preach that message at another point. But after a moment asking for the Lord's help and thinking about, okay, what would be encouraging for our body? What would be helpful for our body? I want to say that the Lord directed my thinking to the verse that we are considering this morning and the message that I believe it has for us as God's people. Now, as always, we, we never want to jump blind into a passage. We're parachuting into the book of Ezra. We're not in a sustained study of it like we are in Romans 14 and 15 at the moment. So for a moment, let's consider some of the background to the book of Ezra. Let's consider some of the backdrop to this book that we're looking at this morning. In your English Bibles, you typically have two books side by side, Ezra and Nehemiah. In the original Hebrew text, they're actually one volume because they're really telling one story. It's a record of the early days following the return of God's people from the exile. God's people had systematically rejected his law, had not followed it. And finally, God said, in fulfillment of what he told Moses back in Deuteronomy, if you, as the tenants in the land that I am the landlord of, if you do not obey my rules, I will evict you from this land and send you into a land that's not your own. And so in Jeremiah, God prophesied and said that they would be in the land for 70 years. Out of the land, excuse me, for 70 years. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah is really the story of what happened when, after 70 years, some, not all of the people, because some of the people we know stayed in Babylon. For example, you read the book of Daniel, Daniel's somebody who stayed. But Ezra and Nehemiah formed the record of what happened when some of the people returned back to Judah. Now, Ezra is more than likely the author of this. There's some debate as to whether the person who wrote Chronicles also wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. That's a discussion for another time. I personally think Ezra is more than likely the author. Um, in fact, chapter 7 that we're in, from verse 27 through to the end of chapter 9, is written in the first person. Ezra himself writes that portion. When you look at the book of Ezra, Ezra really has two big headlines. As we're painting this backdrop, two big headlines. 
Chapters 1 through 6 tell the story of the restoration of the temple. So the temple that was this house basically built for God, this structure that symbolized the abiding presence of God with his people. Well, in the destruction of Jerusalem, it had been, well, destroyed. And so they are rebuilding and restoring the temple so that worship can resume in the first six chapters. But then chapter 7 happens and there's a turn. We go from construction, if you will, to consecration. Uh, we go from restoration to reformation. Because in chapter 1 through 6, you have the restoration of the temple. But in chapter 7 through 12, you have the reformation of the people. Now that the temple's been built, now that the temple has been restored, there now needs to be a reformation of the people because they've been in Babylon 70 years. They've been around a culture that is completely and unentirely like the culture of God's people. In a lot of ways, it's like the Exodus. Remember the children of Israel were in Egypt for 430 years and then God delivered them or brought them out. And then it's, in, it's not by accident that you have the book of Exodus, which tells the story of them coming out. And the next book is Leviticus. God got them out of Egypt in Exodus, but in Leviticus, he has to get Egypt out of them. That's a whole other sermon for another time. He, he has to, as it were, do some reformation and rewiring. Well, that happens here in the exile, and it happens through Ezra, who's the main character. Though Ezra comes from an impressive pedigree, did you see that there in verses 1 through 5? You could trace his line right back to Aaron, the chief priest. Though he comes from an impressive line, we don't really read much about Ezra, apart from here and a couple of places elsewhere in the Old Testament. He's an otherwise ordinary priest, but this ordinary priest comes with one rather extraordinary task in mind. Now that the city's been rebuilt, there needs to be reformation of this people. The text that we read this morning in verses 1 through 10 is basically our introduction to Ezra. It's his resume, if you will, who he is and why he's qualified for this work. Why is that he was preeminently qualified to bring about the kind of reform that the people of God needed? Did you notice that little phrase in verse 6 and verse 9 as we read? Verse 6, the king had granted him all that he requested because the hand of Yahweh his God was on him. You see that there again in verse 9? It says that he made this journey and the implication is he made that journey a lot quicker than most people would. But it says that he was able to make that journey, verse 9, since, see there at the end, the, some of your translations would say the good hand of his God. The CSB says the gracious hand of his God was on him. Wouldn't it be something to know that that was true of us? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't we like it to be said of us that the hand of God was on us? I wonder, have you ever met somebody who's had that? It's very evident that it's clear that the hand of God is on this person. I've had the privilege in my life of meeting a few people like that where it's like, yep, there's something about this person that ain't like everyone else. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could be described as having the good hand of God on us? 
I mean, wouldn't that be something? Well, I believe we can. I believe that it's actually perfectly possible for us to be described in the kind of way that Ezra is described. I believe that it is more than possible to know the blessing of God in the kind of way that Ezra seemed to know it and experience it in our text. I don't think it's an accident that right on the heels of telling us that in verse 9, we get the words that's going to form the basis of our study this morning in verse 10. Now, some of your translations do a good job of showing the link better than others. I'm going to mark my own translation to CSB down a little bit here. Some of your translations will say, for beginning verse 10, Ezra had determined in his heart, or Ezra had set his heart. CSB says now, which isn't a bad translation, but I do think it kind of obscures the fact that Verse 9 flows seamlessly into verse 10. Verse 10 is giving us the reason, I would argue, that God's hand was on him. Why was it that Ezra knew God's blessing? Well, because he'd made some determinations in his heart relating to the word of God. Here's my contention this morning. Here's the point I want to make this morning. I'm going to see if I can try and defend that point, but here's the point I want to make this morning. Without being saturated with and submitted to the scriptures, there can be no revival, no power, no blessing from God. Let me say that again. Without being saturated with and submitted to the scriptures, there can be no revival, no power, no blessing from God not on the church universal not on our local fellowship not on us as individual believers if I can put it kind of boldly no Bible no blessing now let's be clear let's be clear let's be clear that's not all God has promised to bless it's not as though well if I just study my Bible and I don't do anything else in my Christian life that's going to do it I'm not saying that because actually there are a bunch of other passages in the Bible They'll talk about people that God will bless. So I'm not going to say that this is all that God has promised to bless. But I'm not going to say that it's any less than this. This morning, I want us to do a little character study on Ezra based on this verse. As we look at verse 10, I want to do a little bit of a character study. And I want to see how it is that we can become as I've tagged our text, scripture-saturated souls. What is it That was true of Ezra. That needs to be true of us if we're going to experience the hand of God in blessing on our lives. Both as individuals and as a body. How do we do that? If you're going to be the kind of believer that God blesses in this kind of way, well, you need to be a scripture-saturated soul. Well, that begs the question, how do you do that? How do you become... The kind of soul that is saturated by the truth of Scripture. Can I give you three hallmarks of that this morning? Three hallmarks of the Scripture-saturated soul this morning. First of all, it begins with searching the Word of God. It begins with searching the Word of God. So you see it there in verse 10, our text begins, Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. Ezra knew God's blessing because first and foremost, he had committed himself, literally, 
He has set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Now, our English translations use the word study, and it's a good word, because it carries the idea, the original Hebrew term, of searching out, of investigating, of seeking out with care. It's the idea of not just a casual look at something, but an intense, focused, particular look at something. If we can put it like this, Ezra wasn't a casual Bible reader. He wasn't an inconsistent Bible reader. No, Ezra was one who was a student of the Word of God. This language of searching, it, it, it implies a few things. It implies a few things. Keep a finger here in Ezra. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs. I think there's a passage in the book of Proverbs which I think will kind of illuminate a few things as we think about this concept of searching the Word of God. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, reading from verse 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 5. Proverbs chapter 2, reading from verse 1, says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom, excuse me, and directing your heart to understanding, furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver, oh, that's interesting, there's that language, seek it like silver and Search for it. The, the word that's translated search here, same word back in Ezra chapter 7. And search for it like hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and discover the knowledge of God. The opening verses of the book of Proverbs are a father speaking to his son, basically imploring his son to pay attention to what I'm telling you. And it's fascinating that he says, listen, if you look for wisdom and you search for it the way that people search for treasure, trust me, it's going to be of immense benefit to you. Think of it like this. If I came to you and I said that somewhere in the cruel space of your house, there are some bonds worth two and a half million dollars. Did some historical research, found somebody buried them under the plot of land that's now yours. It's somewhere in your crawl space. You can have them. All you need to do is go look for it. If you can find it, it's yours. How much work would you put in to find that $2.5 million? I'd put it to you. Firstly, you would not see me. Like, bye. Um, I've got work to do. <laughs> $2.5 million is not a small amount of money. <laughs> Why? Because there's value attached to that. There's worth attached to that. But here's the thing. The writer of Proverbs says that you should seek after wisdom and understanding 
and he's going to go on in Proverbs chapter 3 to know that that comes only from the Almighty, that you should search for it like you would for silver, like you would for something that was precious. The, the, the implication is that as you're looking and as you're searching, you're searching intently because you know that if I find this, I'm going to find something of value. The father in Proverbs says to his son, get after wisdom and understanding the way you'd get after money if you knew exactly where to find it. Can, can I pause for a second? Make some application already. I often encounter Christians who will, in one way or another, tell me that they're not motivated to be in their Bibles. Now, I applaud the honesty. I do. Because like I said, I've been there. So I, I, I'm not going to say that I don't understand it. I'm not going to say that I don't sympathize. But as I hear some people speak, it becomes very apparent to me where their problem is. Not all the time. I do think there's such a thing as spiritual depression. I do think that there are times like Pastor Owen preached for us last week where the soul is burdened and it's a struggle even to worship. I, I'm, I'm not saying that those times don't happen. And I'm saying that when those times do happen, people need to be comforted. That's not the time for you to, as my dad would say, that's the time for you to bring out a hug, not a belt. But I think there are other times where it becomes very apparent as you talk as I talk to people, as I encounter people who say that, that they don't appreciate the treasure that this word of God is. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. God, the, the, the one who made you, the, the one who gives you life and breath, if you're here and you're a believer, the one who has graciously saved you, the one who has poured out blessing after blessing of the spiritual life upon you, that God, he's we talked about this on Wednesday in our equipping time. The whole idea of revelation. God has spoken. If we understand that to be true, that the Bible is not just a record of man's religious experience, as theological liberalism said for hundreds of years and continues to say. No, if we say that this, as we saw in our Wednesday equipping time, the very first session, that these words were breathed out by God, that these came directly as a work of his spirit. If that's the case, I have to wonder for the folks who don't seem to have an appreciation of it, how on earth can you, could you have no desire for God's word knowing what it is? I mean, it, it, can't, be lack for, it can't be for lack of opportunity. I mean, we are so blessed in the 21st century to have so much access to resources to help us study the Word of God. Even if you don't want to spend money, and that's a whole other conversation I want to have with evangelicals as a whole. But even if you don't want to spend money, there are so many free resources out there to help you dig deep into the Scriptures. And more than ever, we're blessed with all different kinds. If, like me, you like to read, well, we've got books a dime a dozen. Maybe you're not the book type. Okay, you can jump on YouTube. I'm more an audio guy. I like to listen to stuff. I don't, you can, there's podcasts, sermon audio. Hundreds of ministries have their sermons online. You can listen to. Like, it's not for lack of opportunity that we have no desire. I, I mean, it, it can't be for lack of time. This might get a little painful, but uh, I mean, 
I, I watch TV. I'm currently enjoying Midsummer Murders. Um, I like that show. Um, I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't watch TV. Um, I make time for nice, clean television, even if it's a murder mystery based in an English village. Um, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch TV. I'm not saying you shouldn't have time for recreation. Uh, uh, it's good to relax. It's good to unwind. God has made us in such a way as rest is good. <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't make time for your family. You should. They're your primary, they're your first ministry, not your only, but they're your first ministry. Absolutely, you should make time for your family. I'm not saying you shouldn't make time for other things, but I'll often hear Christians say, I, I just don't have the time for Bible study. And he's like, but you've got time for everything else. <laughs> and I have to ask, is it, is it a lack of time? Is it a lack of opportunity? Well, it can't be lack of time, it can't be lack of opportunity. It can't be a lack of means, which then begs the question, is it simply just a lack of desire? Psalm 119, I'd encourage you sometime this week, make some time and read it. 176 verses, 22 stanzas of eight verses each, all about the word of God. Can I give you a sampling of some of the things the psalmist says about the word of God in Psalm 119. Last night I said I didn't have a ton of time, but my, my mind came here and I said, you know what? I want to take just the first four stanzas, verses 1 through 32. And I want to note some of the things that the psalmist says as an expression of his heart about the word of God. I'm going to fly through this, so I'll try not to be, I'll try to say it slowly enough so you can write it down and go home and look at it in your own time. But verse 5. Psalm 119 verse 5, he says, If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes. The psalmist cries out and says, If only I just loved the word more. Verse 7, he says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. He says, when I learn your truth, it leads me to praise. Verse 8, I will keep your statutes never abandon me verse 10 i have sought you with my whole heart don't let me wander from your commands verse 14 i rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as all riches oh there's that comparison again the word of god and riches verse 16 i will delight in your statutes I will not forget your word. Verse 18, verse I've quoted many, many times. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law. Verse 20, I am continually overcome with longing for your judgments. Verses 23 and 24. Though princes sit together speaking against me, your servant will think about your statutes. Your decrees are my delights and my counselors. Verse 27. Help me to understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. Verse 31. I cling to your decrees. Literally the idea of I dig my nails into your decrees. Lord, don't put me to shame. Finally, verse 32. I pursue 
the way of your commands, for you broaden my understanding. That's just four. There are 22 of these stanzas. Do you see the passion that the psalmist had for the word of God? And I don't think it's by accident that this is a heart level thing. You may have thought I skipped it, but I didn't. No, in verse 10 of chapter 7 of Ezra, it says, Ezra had determined in his heart. Brothers and sisters, uh, being scripture saturated, being scripture saturated, you know where that starts at? That starts at the heart level. It's not that I should, I or Brian or Pastor Joe or Pastor Owen or anyone else who comes to our pulpit should come and basically browbeat people into studying the Bible. That's not the point. There was a point in my life where I thought that's what people needed. You know, people are just lazy. They just need a boot applied to their proverbial rear end to get it into gear. And then it hit me. It hit me, it hit me. Years ago, just studying Bible. Like, Wait a minute. That's not how the Bible talks about this. Well, now the Bible talks about this, the word of God and searching after God's truth, it always talks to the heart. It speaks about this on the level of our affections. The list of our affections. One of my favorite verses, my dad had me memorize this as a kid. Job 23 and 12. Job says, I have not departed from the commands from his lips. I have, again, I haven't memorized it in the King James Version. I have esteemed the word of his mouth as more necessary than my daily food. I have esteemed the words from his, and interesting, Job didn't have a Bible. Job is arguably the first book in the, chronologically, is one of the first books written in the Bible in terms of the time it covers. It's before the time of Abraham. So he didn't have a Bible. But clearly he had revelation from God because you see in Job, God speaks. And he says, listen, I have esteemed the words I've heard from God as more necessary than my daily food. If I can put it like this, perhaps we struggle with appetite for the word because, like me, when I, obviously my diet's changed somewhat recently. But when I used to go to Olive Garden with my wife for Valentine's Day, I was, I'm always the guy who's filling up on breadsticks before the food actually comes out. I, I'm that guy. I mean, they make such great breadsticks. How can you not? Um, perhaps we struggle with appetite for the word of God because like me, when I go to Olive Garden, we're so full on the sides of this world, there's no room for the main course of God's word. Becoming a scripture-saturated soul begins at the level of searching the word of God. And that's a heart determination. We have to desire to study these things. Ezra had to determine in his heart, going back to our text, he had to determine in his heart that this was going to be the course that he took. But here's the thing. Desiring to study God's word or even doing it is not enough. It's not enough for us to just say, well, okay, you know what? I'm going to white knuckle it. I'm going to spend time in the Bible. I'm going to do two hours a day. You know, I'm going to do like one of my favorite authors. Some of you know is A.W. Pink. 
um, it was said that when A.W. Pink wanted to study, what he would do is he would take a bucket, fill it with iced water, and put his feet in the bucket so that he would stay awake. A.W. Pink was an interesting character. I think he was kind of an oddball, personally, when you read some of his biographies and what have you. But it speaks with determination. It's like, no, this is important to me. I need to do this. But listen, determination is not enough. Even fulfilling it is not enough. You see, becoming a scripture-saturated soul begins with searching the word of God, but secondly, it leads to submission to the word of God. So look back at Ezra chapter 7. Those two words that follow on in our text. Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of God. And he determined in his heart to obey it. To obey it. You see, once we give ourselves to studying the scriptures, we can't end there. You can't just say, well, I'm studying. That's enough. Studying is good. I'm, I'm never gonna, you'll never hear me downing, studying scripture, and digging deep into it. You'll never hear me do it. Mm -mm. If, let's put it this way. If I, were, if I was kidnapped and I called you and I started downing Bible study, that's how you know something is wrong. Cold phrase. Like, something's not right. But I do think that un it may be unfair, but I see how it happens. Bible study and being diligent about the truth and doctrine and theology, sometimes it can get a bad rap. I mean, we, we've all met the people. Uh, the, those who stop only at just knowing what words on a page mean. They've only got an academic interest in the Bible. Or worse, they have an academic interest in the Bible and like to argue their academic interest in the Bible. You know, arguing endless points of meaningless minutiae. And yet when you look at them, it's like, okay, but you've got no fruit of Christ's likeness in your life. All this truth that you allegedly understand from your Bible. And yet there's no life transformation. And as a result, there are people who look at that and will say, well, if that's what studying the Bible does for you, if that's what digging deep into scriptures does for you, I want no part in that. Like, I, I don't, you know what? I just, I don't do, I've had, again, been doing this a little bit, not long, just, just a little bit. As I've been doing this over the years, I encounter so many people who are like, I thank God that you have a passion for that. I don't. I think that stuff gets in the way of Jesus. Never forget somebody actually told, I only heard this on the internet, and then one day someone actually told us, like, wow, people say this? A guy came up to me and said, I don't do exegesis, it X's out Jesus. <laughs> Firstly, what? <laughs> Second of all, how do you, my, this has become my pet answer to when people say that. Okay, so I don't, you don't do studying the Bible, you just want to love Jesus, cool, which one? Because if I go, you know, if I go talk to a Mormon, he's got a Jesus. You know, he's got an annoying kid brother called Lucifer. Um, was the product of a relationship between God the Father and Mary, according to one of their prophets. Do I go with that Jesus? Or do I go with the JW Jesus? Who was originally Michael the Archangel. And then became Jesus. And then Jesus died. The body was destroyed. He was resurrected spiritually. 
and now he's, we don't really know what he is. Sometimes he's Jesus, sometimes he's my, which, which one? Well, no, you have to actually open the Bible and ask, well, what did Jesus say about himself? At that point, you've just defeated your own argument. Congratulations. That's one way people go with it. Another way people is like, well, yeah, I think the Bible is important, but I just go to where all the practical stuff in the Bible. So you see this in churches where every sermon series is five tips for doing this, ten steps for this, five steps for this, and it's like an endless, I call it legal preaching. Um, my friend Mike Abendroth um, put me onto that term. Legal preaching, or the term I like to call it how-to preaching. Just the Bible is a list of do's and don'ts, the Bible is a list of things that you should do and things you shouldn't do. So here are some things to do. Here are some things not to do. And go have at it. Now, let's be clear. There's nothing wrong with exhortation. There's nothing wrong with plain application with piercing reference. I 110% believe that's needed. But note the order in our text. Ezra could only obey the word of the Lord after he'd studied it. As we've been seeing in our series in Romans 14 and 15, if we do truly believe that God alone is Lord of the conscience, if that's true, it's only when he speaks that we are to give unyielding obedience. Ezra studied the word of God and then he was able to obey it. You see, there's an order to the way in which God deals with us in relation to his word. We see the scripture. That then leads us to search it out. And then we submit to its truth. We see the scriptures. We search the scriptures. And then we submit to its truth. I told you about A.W. Ping being one of my favorite authors. He wrote a book. Um, you can actually get it for free from Chapel Library. It's called Profiting from the Word. Profiting from the Word. In that book he says this. It is not sufficient merely to assent to the veracity or the truthfulness of the scriptures. They require to be received into the affections. It is unspeakably solemn to note that the Holy Spirit specifies as the ground of apostasy, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, because they did not receive the love of the truth. I'll pause and say that's a good point. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 that the delusion that will ultimately bring in the final Antichrist, I believe, that that delusion, where does that delusion come from? It's just because they didn't love the truth. Not that they didn't know it, but that they didn't love it. So I agree with, Doc, I agree with the saying to Dr. Pink, but he carries on. If it lie only in the tongue or in the mind, only to make it a matter of talk and speculation, it will soon be gone. The seed which lies on the surface, the fowls in the air will pick up. Therefore, hide it deeply. Let it get from the ear into the mind, from the mind into the heart. Let it soak in further and further. It is only when it has a prevailing sovereignty in the heart that we receive the love of it. When it is dearer to us than our dearest passions, then it will stick to us. End quote. He's right. I, studying the scripture is good. I, I told you, I will always encourage being in the Bible, getting more deep in its truth. But let's be clear, it's not enough just to study the scriptures. You have to submit to it. In one of the Romans 14 messages, I think I use the language of the hermeneutic of yeah, but. Anyone remember that? 
you know, you read a passage, say, yeah, that's what it says, but, and then you proceed to say something that invalidates what it clearly says. Th th that can't work. We give ourselves to being saturated in the scriptures precisely so we can submit to its authority because its authority is God's authority. James puts it like this, James chapter 1, 22 to 25. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read it. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intensely in the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. I mean, as we study the scriptures and as we submit to its teaching, we're going to find areas where, let's just be honest, it's going to point out things we need to change. At times you're going to read the scriptures and you're going to be like, is there an example for me to follow as I read this passage? Is there a sin for me to avoid? Is there a promise from God for me to dwell upon? Is there a prayer for me to emulate? Is there a command for me to obey? Is there a condition that I need to meet? Is there an error that I need to watch for in my own life? Is there a challenge that I need to face up to? Listen, brothers and sisters, truth transforms. And we have to be committed to allowing it as the Spirit works to transform us. To those who often cry for, I like more practical ministry. I like more practical teaching. Sometimes I sit there and I, again, this is the kind of stuff you're not supposed to say out loud as a preacher, but um, when have you ever known me to have a filter? So um, sometimes I hear that and my natural response is, okay, but what are you doing to make it practical? It's interesting, it doesn't say that Ezra was told what to obey. It says that as he studied it, he saw what needed to be obeyed and he did it. You see, come, becoming a scripture-saturated soul, yes, it begins with searching the word of God, but then it leads to submission to it. Because if this is God's word and he's speaking to us, then our only response is, yes, Lord, what do you want me to do? It begins with searching the word of God. It leads to submission to the word of God. Finally, it culminates in speaking the word of God. It culminates in speaking the word of God. Do so you see there in our text again? Ezra had determined in his heart, first of all, to study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and then, you see that final part there? And teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now at this point, I know the obvious point that's going to get made. Kofi, not everybody's a teacher. You messed up. This text doesn't apply to everyone. Should have given some more thought to that sermon, Kofi. Well, true. Not everyone who not everybody who comes to church is going to stand behind a pulpit and seek to expound God's word. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. That scripture says not everybody should. James chapter 3 verse 1. My brothers, don't let many of you be teachers because we will incur a stricter judgment. 
But can I point out a truth from scripture that I think many people, in my opinion, conveniently forget? Here's a truth from scripture. While every Christian is not going to have the calling to stand in front of God's people and to teach, every Christian has responsibilities to teach other Christians. Wait, Kofi, isn't that a contradiction in terms? You just said not everybody has the responsibility to stand up in front of God's people and teach, but everybody has responsibility to teach other Christians. Well, yes, there are going to be times where one person may take a lead in doing that teaching. And yes, for those people, there are qualifications that Scripture says needs to be met. But I'm going to say that there is a difference between the kind of authoritative teaching that happens, for example, in our context on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, and the kind of one-to-one speaking of God's word to one another that everybody in this room is called to. Can I show you that from God's word? Maybe that might help. Colossians chapter 3. Keep a finger in Ezra. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul says, right into the church at Colossae, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, some translations try and Make the, try to make the point that the teaching and admonishing happens through singing. So even the CSB says through psalms that the problem is the original language is not that clear. And actually, I'd make a case that it doesn't. There's a distinction made between the kind of teaching that happens and our singing to one another. I think they're all manifestations of the word of Christ dwelling richly among God's people. All that to say that when it says in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another... I take that to mean that's a separate command from psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with gratitude in our hearts to the Lord. Every Christian is called, to some degree, to teach and admonish one another. We're in Colossians. Turn back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. Paul is kind of on the home stretch of his letter, as you hit Romans 14. Romans 15, excuse me, in verse 14, he says, My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Oh, okay, okay. Can I give you one more text real quick? One more. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, for me, one of the most sobering texts in all the Bible. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11 to 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. The author of the Hebrews was about to start making some wonderful points about the priesthood of Christ. And he, is, he does pick that up in he does pick that up in chapter 7. But he has to pause. Chapter 5, verse 10. And he says this, Hebrews 5, 11. We have a great deal to say about this. 
and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers. Again, who's he writing to? He's not writing to just the leaders of that congregation. We get that from chapter 13, where he tells the congregation they to submit to their leaders. If they're supposed to submit to their leaders, it can't be the leaders he's writing to, at least not alone. No, he's writing to the congregation as a whole. And he says, listen, for the amount that you know and for the amount of time that you've been in the church, that you've been part of the people of God, that you've been hearing the truth, you should be at the point where you're able to turn around and teach some other people. But verse 12, he says, instead, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Everyone may not be called to full-time word ministry. But let's be clear, we're, we're, we're all called to be teaching one another in some capacity. You don't need a class and some students to do this kind of teaching. I can speak for myself when I say that some of the most impactful lessons I've learned in the Christian life weren't from books. They weren't from conferences. I like books. I like conferences. But that, that's not where I learned most of the most most of the most formative lessons in my Christian life. I didn't learn them from books. I didn't learn them from conferences. Do you know why I learned some of the most formative lessons in my spiritual life? Some of the lessons that to this day I still live by. It was sitting at a three three foot by three foot desk as a Welsh pastor sat with an open Bible and just talked to me. If you know my testimony, you've heard me talk often about my uncle, Pastor Nathaniel, who God used to basically disciple and mentor me. Very rarely did we actually have any sort of formal times of teaching. Very rarely. No, he spent most of, most of our conversations happened on the little table that he had because he was a widow. He was a widower at that point, had been for a few decades. And so he lived alone and says had a modest table that he would eat at. Um, he had a desk in his... Um, so sort of private quarters. But we just sat at this little desk with our Bibles. And he would just talk to me about stuff. He wasn't in a pulpit. He long retired from the ministry at that point. He was just this punk teenager, essentially, sitting at his table asking him all kinds of questions. And him sometimes answering my questions, sometimes telling me that question is dumb. Um, which, again, when you're like 16, 17, you need an older man to sit there and tell you that question is dumb, so you don't ask dumb questions. So thank God for it. But those were the moments for me that I look back on that were the most formative. And praise the Lord, he went home to be with the Lord, and God just kept sending me other people <laughs> where we just sit and have conversations. So you've heard me talk often about my pastor back in London, Dr. Tom Dreon, and his formative influence in my life. 95% of the stuff he taught me that I still use today in ministry didn't happen from the pulpit. It happened on Saturday mornings as we'd sit in his study and just talk. 
think about it. If you've been a believer for any length of time, that you've come to learn some things. You may say, well, I, I'm not as smart as X. Stop. I'm going to just be honest and say, stop comparing yourself with other people. The Bible says that people who do that are not wise. You know, Paul says it. Like, comparing themselves with themselves, they became fools. <laughs> like, that's not wise. No. You focus on your own walk and what the Lord has taught you in your walk. And if he has taught you some things, he's taught you enough that you can turn around and teach somebody who knows less than you. I was talking to my pastor back in London. He always used to say to us guys who were involved in ministry, who are you discipling and who's discipling you? Who are you discipling and who's discipling you? Why? Because that's how the body builds itself up. Ephesians 4. As we speak the truth to one another in love, the body helps itself to grow. So I've got to ask, like, who's God placed in your life to minister the word of God to? Who has God providentially allowed you to cross paths with as you're growing in Christ so that you can help them grow in Christ? Yes, I thank God that as a fellowship, we, are, we put things on like Sundays and we have the Wednesday night equipping time. We have these men's and women's studies that we've started that are hopefully times of equipping and training and helping you to get a better grasp of God's word for the purpose of being able to minister to others. But even if we didn't have any of that, there's enough that the Lord has taught you both by precept of his word and by practical experience that you're able to teach somebody else. And so the question becomes, like Ezra, are you determining in your heart that I'm going to minister the word of God to other people? Maybe you say, well, Kofi, I'm not ready yet. I'm still learning. If you are in that position, please do not take this as me scolding you. Take this as an encouragement. Take the time. Take, le learn what you need to learn. I think it's a wise person who recognizes I still have a lot to learn and I'm not quite ready yet. Uh, I've often used the analogy that Christian ministry is like war. You can send teenagers who are unprepared to war, as has often been the case in history. Doesn't always work out that well. Ideally, you want to send people who have had some kind of training. And training is not a, again, it's not a class with a certificate. No, it's simply just being taught the word of God and it's allowing its truth to wash over you, becoming somebody who is submitted in the scriptures. Somebody, as they've submitted to the scriptures, who's then able to speak it to others and is constantly going through that cycle. doesn't just say, oh, I did that one time and now I've got the rubber stamp. I can go and do this. Like, No, you're constantly going back to God's word constantly. As I conclude this morning, as we've looked at this portrait, it's one single verse giving us an insight into who Ezra was. I have to ask, are you becoming a scripture-saturated soul? You see, that actually starts with conversion. Think about it. Peter says that we're born again not because of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. Become scripture saturated. It starts at the point of salvation as you hear the gospel message, as you hear the good news of Christ's incarnation, his perfect sinless life, his atoning death, 
his resurrection and his current ascension and session. As you hear that wonderful and good news and the fact that all men everywhere are called to repent and you believe in that, that starts you, at least in the Bible's conception, on the process of becoming scripture saturated. So if you're here and you don't know the Lord, that's where that starts. It starts with hearing the message of the gospel and believing that message and turning from sin and turning to Christ. And if you're here and you're a believer, can I leave you with this piece of homework for this week? If you're here and you're saying, you know, I don't have this kind of love for the word. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. Kofi, that, that Bible fatigue thing you talked about, I kind of feel that a little bit. I told you, oh, I didn't say this, I was supposed to. Do you know what pulled me out of that maelstrom of a good three, four months? It was prayer. I, just, I kind of, I went to, actually, I went to my pastor first and foremost and said, Doc, uh, this is what's happening with me. I don't know what's happening, but it is. And he pointed me to a verse of scripture, Isaiah 30 and verse 20. That the, one, that the one who is yet walking in darkness, let him yet trust in the Lord his God. Let him yet walk in the light that he has. He said, he said you messed, he was very polite about it. He said, you kind of messed up when you thought, I can't read my Bible, so I'm not going to read my Bible. He said, make yourself do it. He said, but as you're doing it, don't just make yourself do it. Pray and ask God that he would give you that love for the word once again. And I did it. First time, nothing happened. Second time, nothing happened. I want to say like a dozen times, nothing happened. But one day it took. <laughs> one day finally it was like, I want to do this again. <laughs> I want to do this again. Psalm 37 and 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he gives you what your heart wants, he will give you what your heart should want. That's a whole other sermon for another time. But if we're lacking this love for the word, maybe we just need to ask God to give it to us. <laughs> On top of that, how about giving yourself to the times where it's being taught? Passion, I, I almost preached the message on zeal this morning, and I'll save that for another time. Zeal is more caught than it is taught. By that, I mean sometimes you just need to be around people who are zealous for their faith. Be around people who are zealous for the word of God. Be around those kinds of people because they will push you. They will propel you. Look over, I don't know anybody like that. Okay. Find some. Social media is a curse at times, but it's also a blessing because it puts you in circles with people who can be a help to you in this realm. Brothers and sisters, I want us to be a church full of scripture-saturated souls. Not just big heads and shriveled hearts. No, completely whole as we submit ourselves to the scriptures, as we search out its truth, as we submit to its authority, as we speak it to one another. That's how God is going to build up the church. Not necessarily in numbers, but in terms of spiritual strength, in terms of maturity. That's how God builds his church. Let's pray together.
Oh, Father, my, my prayer is single this morning. I pray that you would give all of us a greater love for your word. Father, give us the kind of love for your truth. The kind of love, the kind of affection to where everything else looks like hate in comparison. Father, we thank you that you don't call us to kind of work up a sort of spiritual euphoria within ourselves. But that you invite us to come and to ask and that you will graciously give. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our midst. I thank you, like I said, I don't see the signs of that. And yet, Father, I pray that we would still excel still more. That we would continue to be given to your word and to what it teaches. That we would love the word. We would never grow tired of it. That as it were, we would be magnetized by it. Constantly drawn to its truth because we recognize that as we see its truth, we see our Savior better. Who is indeed the living truth. Father, help us to truly be a Bible fellowship. Not just in name, but in affection and in deed. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.